Joseph Cannon and Jonathan Sturgeon. Enjoy the show. Welcome to our first ever podcast episode on our channel, History Haven. I'm Johnny and I'm here with Joseph Cannon. Today, we will be beginning with our series all about the Prime Ministers of our home nation, the UK, a series that will span from the 18th century to the modern day. In addition to this series, we will also have a second set of podcasts called Your Guide to the English Past, focusing on a rich history of England. And thirdly, we have a series for our international listeners talking about the battles and wars of all times and all nations. So back onto Prime Ministers now. As I say, you never forget your thirsts, and we certainly haven't. So we are going to begin with our man, Big Bob, known as the common man as Sir Robert Walpole. Walpole was PM from 1721 to 1742 and ruled for just shy of 21 years, during which time he managed to captivate the House of Commons with his rhetoric skills and establish what we now know as the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. So strap yourself in for a two-decade rollercoaster that is Sir Robert Walpole's premiership. Sir Robert Walpole was the first Earl of Orford. He was born on the 26th of August 1676 in Norfolk. He was the third son of Colonel Robert Walpole and was educated at Eton between 1690 and 1696. He then studied at King's College Cambridge for two years. The death of his elder brother Edward, however, cut short his academic career by a year and instead of entering the church, he returned to Norfolk to help administer his father's nine estates. He married Catherine Shorter in 1700. That same year, his father died and he inherited his large estate, as well as the family parliamentary seat at Castle Rising, for which he was immediately elected. Thus, his parliamentary career had begun. In 1702, he transferred to the constituency of Kings Lynn, which he represented with one short intermission for the next 40 years. Walpole rapidly made his mark in the House of Commons, earning the reputation of being a clear, forceful speaker, a moderate Whig. Walpole's father had been a Whig and a supporter of the 1689 Glorious Revolution Act, which gave Britain a constitutional monarchy. Robert Jr., or RJ, inherited these views, although he was also perceived as a political moderate and an efficient administrator. He was made a member in 1705 of Prince George of Denmark's council, which controlled the affairs of the navy during the War of the Spanish Succession between 1701 and 1714. His ability as an administrator brought him to the attention of both the Duke of Marlborough and Lord Godolphin, prominent politicians at the time. On the 25th of February 1708, he was promoted to Secretary at War and in 1710 to Treasurer of the Navy. He kept that post until the 2nd of January 1711 at which point he was replaced by a Tory member due to the Tory party win at the general election of 1710. During these years, Walpole established himself as one of the foremost of the younger Whig leaders. In society, as well as in politics, he made his mark. He became a leading member of the Kit Kat Club, a meeting place of many Whig men. And for those who don't know, the Kit Kat Club was a place where they took a break from politics. He had many friends, but his expenses were so high that he fell heavily in debt. He relied on his political offices to keep himself afloat. Nevertheless, he refused to compromise his principles for the sake of his salary and privileges. His priority of attending the Commons and his ability in debate made Walpole the resilient leader of the opposition, and the Tories were determined to ruin him, along with Marlborough. In January 1712, he was impeached for corruption as Secretary at War, found guilty, expelled from the Commons, and sent to the Tower of London for six months. Ooh, someone's been a bad boy. <laughs> 
the tower he would have been able to see Westminster, just 2.5 miles from his cell. During his time incarcerated, the Tower of London was the Royal Zoo, which had been there since the 1200s. It was filled with wild animals ranging from polar bears to elephants. When the Tower Zoo closed down in 1835, all the animals were moved to the new London Zoo in Regent's Park, but Walpole was long gone by that point. He was immediately acclaimed as a martyr by the Whigs, and he himself developed a hatred for the Tory leaders, Robert Harley and Henry St. John, who had brought about his fall. Walpole finally enjoyed his revenge in 1714 at the accession of George I, when, as well as being made Paymaster General of the Forces, he became Chairman of the secret committee. That led to the impeachment for treason of both Bolingbroke and Oxford. Walpole's mastery of the commons brought him rapid promotion. He became first Lord of the Treasury and Chancellor of the Exchequer on October the 11th, 1715, aka my birthday. What? You're 303? <laughs> what is wrong with you? <laughs> His abilities also aroused jealousy which was exacerbated by a conflict over foreign policy that saw Walpole, that saw Charles, Viscount Townshend on one side and two of the king's closest advisers, James Stanhope and Charles Spencer, on the other. Walpole and Townshend maintained a British interest with being sacrificed for King Zenobian interests in order to curry favour. The break came in 1717 and Walpole and Townshend left the ministry. Shortly afterward, a violent quarrel between the king and the Prince of Wales split the royal family, and the opposition acquired its own court at the prince's residence, Leicester House. During the next three years, Walpole fought the government on every issue, achieving considerable success in bringing about the rejection of the Peerage Bill, 1719, which would have limited the royal prerogative in the creation of peers. During this time, too, he became friendly with Caroline of Ansbach, the Princess of Wales, who was to help maintain him in power when her husband succeeded to the throne in 1727 as King George II. Walpole used his influence with the prince to bring about a reconciliation with the king in April 1720, and his own subsequent return to the ministry as Paymaster General of the Forces. As of 1720, it was all going swimmingly for Walpole, but then came the South Sea Company Bonanza. No sooner was he back in office and the country was caught up in the speculative frenzy associated with the South Sea Company, a joint stock company with monopoly rights to trade with Spanish America. A scheme was set up in 1720 whereby the company would take charge of a large part of the national debt. Although Walpole had favoured letting the Bank of England take over the debt, he was no more prudent than many others and invested heavily in the South Sea stock. He was saved from financial disaster by the foresight of his banker, Robert Jacomb. Nevertheless, Walpole had not been a promoter of the scheme, and he was free from the stigma of corruption that marked many other ministers, as well as the king's German favourites. He uses great political skill and persuasive powers of argument in the Commons to save the Whig leaders and the court from the consequences of their folly. Some members had to be sacrificed, however, to appease public opinion. Among them, John Aislaby, Chancellor of the Exchequer. Others died under the strain, most notably being Stanhope and James Craggs. Walpole restored confidence, maintained the Wigton office, and greatly improved his own and Townshend's standing at court. He once again became the First Lord of the Treasury and Chancellor of the Exchequer in April 1721, offices that he was to hold until 1742. Townshend became once more Secretary of State and took over the control of foreign affairs. 
For some time, Walpole and Townshend were forced to share power with John Carteret, who was later and more commonly known as Earl Grandal, who had succeeded to Sunderland's influence after Sunderland's sudden death in April 1722. By 1724, however, Walpole and Townshend obtained the dismissal of Carteret from his secretaryship of state and had him sent to Ireland as Lord Lieutenant. For the rest of George I's reign, Walpole and Townshend remained at the head of the ministry. Their position steadily grew stronger. The hopes of the Jacobites, who had supported the return to the throne of the Stuarts, which the South Sea bubble had fanned, were quashed in 1723 by the exposure of the insurrection planned by Francis Atterbury, Bishop of Rochester. The outlook for the Tory party was equally gloomy, in spite of a pardon given to Bolingbroke in 1725. Walpole's supremacy in the Commons was maintained until 1742. In 1727, at the accession of George II, he suffered a minor crisis, when for a few days it seemed that he might be dismissed, but Queen Caroline prevailed on her husband to keep Walpole in office. King George II had sought to appoint Spencer Compton as Prime Minister, as he had promised. However, Compton was not known as a man of great ability, he was described by a contemporary as a plodding, heavy fellow, with great application but no talents. In particular, he proved unable to compete with Walpole's proposals for an allowance for the king. At a meeting between the three, Compton declared he was not up to the task of running a government. Walpole maintained power despite another hiccup. He was the target of a Tory effort to destroy his relationship with the Queen, when a mischief maker told Caroline, the Queen, that Walpole had called her. Fat bitch. <laughs> she replied to the Chief Minister with a message that's the the fat bitch had forgiven him. In 1730, he quarrelled with Townshend over the conduct of foreign affairs and forced Townshend's resignation, but his retirement had no effect on Walpole's position. These were the years of Walpole's greatness. His power was based on the loyal support given to him by George I and George II. This enabled him to use all royal patronage for political ends and Walpole's appointments to offices in the royal household, the church, the navy, the army and the civil service were, whenever possible, made with an eye to his, to his voting strength in the House of Commons. By these means, he built up the court and treasury party that was to be the core of Whig strength for generations to come. These methods, however, never gave him control of the House of Commons. His majorities at Westminster came about because of his policy of peace abroad and low taxation at home, which appealed strongly to the independent country gentlemen who sat in Parliament. He famously said to Queen Caroline, Madam, there are 50,000 men slain this year in Europe, and not one, an Englishman. Also, Walpole possessed remarkable powers in debate. His knowledge of the detail of government, particularly of finance, was unmatched, and his expression was clear and forceful. He never underestimated the powers of the Commons, and no minister before or since has shown such skills in management or oratory. Even Jacob Rees-Mogg would be put to shame by this man's words. Foreign affairs gave him constant trouble. Although Townshend had secured the prospect of a settlement by the Treaty of Hanover in 1725, which helped strengthen the alliance between England and France, the difficulties that had arisen with Spain over Gibraltar and British trading rights in the West Indies proved intractable, and England hovered on the brink of war until Walpole intervened. By showing willingness to negotiate, he secured the Treaty of Seville in 1729. This was followed by a general settlement in 1731 at the Treaty of Vienna. When war broke out on the continent in 1733 over the question of the succession to the Polish throne, 
Walpole had to use all his influence with the king in order to maintain England's neutrality. Whilst his time in power was marked by sleaze and calls of corruption, he successfully managed to keep Britain out of the continental wars. Many politicians, particularly those whom Walpole had driven into opposition, regarded his foreign policy as a betrayal of England's interests. Though they thought he had become the dupe of France to the neglect of England's former allies, the Austrians and the Dutch, his desires to maintain friendship with France led to weakness towards Spain. They also disapproved of his use of patronage, which they stigmatised as corruption. They condemned his financial schemes as a sham, particularly the sinking fund to abolish the national debt. The prime movers in the opposition were William Pulteney, an able Whig whom Walpole had rejected in 1724 in favour of the Duke of Newcastle as Secretary of State. They drew together a miscellaneous co collection of members in opposition, Jacobites, Hanoverian Tories, dissident Whigs and urban radicals. They attempted to give coherence to the party so formed, but with little success. The liveliest part of their campaign was the violent press agitation against Walpole. For this purpose they founded the Craftsman, which denigrated Walpole's ministry week after week. Walpole was attacked in pamphlets, ballads and plays, as well as in the newspapers, and this constant stream of abuse, which was not without a certain element of truth, did much to bring both Parliament and politics into contempt. Walpole, however, came very close to collapse. The great opportunity for the opposition came in 1733, when Walpole decided to check smuggling and customs frauds by imposing an excise tax on wine and tobacco. This was extremely unpopular, particularly with the London merchants and the opposition did all in its power to influence public opinion against him. Walpole saved himself from a defeat by withdrawing this measure, but those politicians who had been indiscreet enough to show opposition to Walpole's bill lost their offices. These dismissals, however, weakened Walpole's position. He lost considerable debating skill as well as votes in the House of Lords, which at the time still played an important part in governing. After 1733, the list of able but dismissed Whig politicians grew large enough to supply an alternative Whig ministry to Walpole's own, and after the excise crisis, the, op the opposition Whigs had far less need to rely on Tory and Jacobite elements in their battle against Walpole. Bolingbroke himself realised this. He withdrew from politics and retired to France in 1735, admitting defeat in his lifelong struggle with Walpole. In the mid-1730s, Walpole's unpopularity grew. Despite winning the general election of 1734, it had given rise to many violent contests and a resurgence of the old bitterness against him. His growing unpopularity was underlined by the loss of many seats in the large seaports and heavily populated counties. Nevertheless, his majority, although diminished, remained comfortable. Unlike Theresa May's. Without much difficulty, he surmounted troubled battles in Edinburgh with a portrait riot over the royal pardon of the captain of the guards who had fired on a crowd demonstrating at Edinburgh Prison. He easily persuaded the Commons to reject Sir John Barnard's scheme to reduce the interest on the national debt and showed his contempt for the literary opposition, among whose members were Swift, Pope and Fielding, by imposing regulations on London theatres in 1737. All you theatre fans out there would be weeping. Yet his positions began to weaken. The death of Queen Caroline had less effect than many had assumed, for by then George II had developed great loyalty to his minister. More important was Walpole's increasing age, which led young politicians, such as William Pitt the Elder, ironic, to look elsewhere for their future advancement. The emergence as a leader of the opposition of Frederick Louis, Prince of Wales. Is it Louis or Louis? Louis, like Louis Farouk. 
Like, decent. I love Louis Theroux. Shout out to Louis Theroux. Get on it's our podcast. <laughs> the emergence as a leader of the opposition of Frederick Louis, Prince of Wales, who had quarrelled violently with his parents, provided a focus and a port for the Patriot Boys, as these young Whigs came to be called. The growing difficulties of Spain over trading matters in the West Indies were used by this opposition to embarrass Walpole. Did his utmost to settle these difficulties by negotiation, but in 1739 he was forced to declare war against Spain, the so-called War of Jenkins' Ear. He entirely disapproved of the war, and he made his views clear to his cabinet colleagues. These years, too, were darkened by private grief as well as public anxiety. His wife, with whom he had been on indifferent terms, died in 1737, and he was already married by the 3rd of March, 1738, to his mistress of long standing, Maria Skirit, a woman of great charm and wit. Three months later, she unfortunately died in childbirth. Life was not going well for Walpole. To add insult to injury, the war with Spain did not prosper, and opposition continued to mount against Walpole. He succeeded in winning the general election of 1741, but many Whig politicians and a number of independents did not consider him capable of directing the war vigorously enough or of surviving another seven years' parliament. His resignation was forced on the 2nd of February 1742 over a minor issue about the conduct of the war. The king created him Earl of Orford. He was knighted in 1725 already, but he was given an annual pension of £4,000. The Commons then set up a committee to investigate his ministry with a view to impeachment. They failed to secure sufficient evidence and the rancor against Orford petered out. For the rest of his life, he continued to play an active and valuable part in politics. He did his utmost to secure the dismissal of Carteret, who would become Secretary of State on the fall of his ministry, and to secure the promotion of Henry Pelham, his protégé and leader of the Walpole Whigs, to the position of Chief Minister. Orford's influence with George II remained powerful up to the point of his death. Although Walpole rejected the title of Prime Minister, which he regarded as a term of abuse, his control of the Treasury, his management of the Commons, and the confidence that he enjoyed of the two sovereigns whom he had served under demonstrated the kind of leadership that was required to give stability and order to 18th century politics. In 1735, King George II made Walpole a gift of 10 Downing Street, which was in fact called number 5 until 1779, which has since been the permanent London residence of British Prime Ministers. Walpole refused the property as a personal gift, but instead he asked the King to make it available as an official residence to him and to future First Lords of the Treasury. The term First Lord of the Treasury is still a technical term for Prime Minister and is engraved on a brass letterbox on the door. The term Prime Minister wasn't in fact used until 1905 with Henry Campbell Bannerman. The aim of Walpole's premiership was to use his power to maintain the supremacy of the Whig Party. He thought that this could be best achieved by prosperity and low taxation, which in turn depended on peace and on freedom from foreign entanglements. In order to achieve strong support for this policy, he created as many obligations as possible among the politically powerful groups in the country. The Jacobite Rebellion in 1745 demonstrated both the reality of his fears and the success of his policy. The influence of Walpole's long ministry on the structure of 18th century politics was profound. The Tory party, split as it was between Hanoverians and Jacobites, faded into insignificance, and to be a Whig became a necessity for the politically ambitious. The struggle for power ceased to be a conflict between two parties, and became a battle force between divergent groups, personalities and policies within the Whig party itself, in order to gain the support of the court. On one hand, 
on the independent country gentleman in Parliament on the other hand. The frank realism that Walpole had you the frank realism that Walpole had used in all appointments to office, as well as the violent prejudice and often exaggerated criticism to which this gave rise, did much to bring the institutions of government into disrepute and to strengthen the early growth of urban radicalism, particularly in the City of London. On the other hand, Walpole's ministry had, li had little influence on constitutional development. Many generations were to pass before any minister wielded power comparable to his. Like his master, George II, he disliked cabinet government and used it as sparingly as possible. He showed what could be done with the accepted conventions of the constitution, and he never once attempted to change them. One side of Walpole's life is too little noted. He possessed remarkable delights in and judgment of works of art. His house, Horton Hall in Norfolk, was built and furnished under his close supervision. It is a masterpiece of Palladian architecture. To the distress of his son Horace, the famous author of The Castle of Otranto, the first Gothic novel, written in 1764, Walpole's collection of pictures was sold to the Empress of Russia by Walpole's grandson George in 1779. Now in the Hermitage Museum, St. Petersburg, it was one of the most remarkable collections in Europe. He delighted in ostentation and lived in great magnificence, spending freely the huge fortune that he made out of a judicious speculation in public. But the art in the museum is just a slither of his legacy. His real donation to society is the establishment of an official political leader of the country outside of the monarchy. He laid the groundwork for a further 54 heads of state and an incredible podcast series. We have been History Haven and you have been incredible. And now hopefully a better educated listener. We will see you next time because Prime Minister Spencer Compton is calling.